0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Whedon, Illinois. You can have a seat. Um, I do invite you to turn back to the psalm that we just read a moment ago. We're going to be looking at Psalm 90 this morning. As Father Matt mentioned, that is the translation that comes from our book of common prayer. We'd like to work out of that one this morning. Uh, when Father Matt was planning the psalm series, I told him, I would love to preach on Psalm 90 as we're finishing up. Uh, the initiative for the West Lawn, transforming that beautiful part of our property now over there into something wonderful for this generation and generations to come. And one of the main reasons I wanted to look at Psalm 90 together is that this Psalm has often been used as a prayer of blessing, a prayer of dedication when the Lord has blessed his people with a gift, a physical gift, often the gift of place and space. And that's because of that beautiful final verse in this uh, psalm. Prosper the works of our hands, O Lord. Prosper our handiwork. This psalm also has a bit of a history for us at resurrection. Our choir sang a setting of this psalm 11 years ago at the service of consecration for this building and this sanctuary. We sang the famous setting of this psalm by the composer Rafe Vaughan Williams. Okay, when I say famous, I mean famous amongst English choral nerds, famous. <laughs> it is a beautiful piece of music. It starts with four soloists coming in alone, singing this haunting melody to the first verse of the psalm. Lord, Thou hast been our refuge. And then the full choir comes in behind them, pianissimo, singing the hymn, O God, our help in ages past. It is an epic piece of music. It's like eight minutes long. It goes through the entirety of Psalm 90 and it keeps building slowly and slowly and the choir's voices keep rising higher and higher until they're soaring at the end at the last two beautiful verses. May the glorious, may the glory of the Lord rest upon us. Prosper the work of our hands, O Lord. Prosper our handy work. There's no explosion really at the end. but. It feels like that moment, you know, when the national anthem is sung and right as the soloist finishes, three fighter jets, like, fly over their head and the fireworks go off. But it's even better because it's the Bible. (laughs) So after we sang that at the consecration service, one of the choir members reflected back to me, you know what? In that moment, we were singing that the Lord has been our refuge from generation to generation. And it just felt tangibly real. He has been the refuge of Church of the Resurrection for generations. From that generation, those generations back at the original building on Route 59, for the mobile church generations at West Chicago High School, Wheaton College, Glenbard West High School. And here we were in that moment and the Lord had given us a perfect, a permanent place of refuge. And our prayer was that he would prosper the gospel work of our hands in this generation and for the generations that would follow us in this place. That service was a really, really powerful moment in the life of our church. And I remember as I was working with the choir to prepare Psalm 90, this thought struck me, and it struck me again as I was looking at this text this week. And that is that there is a danger. You have to be careful of not doing what I would call a cursory reading of Psalm 990, where you sort of really enjoy the first two verses, then you kind of quickly gloss over the whole middle, and you enjoy the last two verses. That would sound something like this. Lord, you have been our refuge from one generation to another. Before the mountains were brought forth, or the earth and the world were made, you are God from everlasting and world without end. So show your servants your work and their children your glory, and may the grace of the Lord our God be upon us. Prosper the work of our hands, oh, prosper our handiwork. Isn't that a lovely psalm? Let's go home. Unfortunately, Father Matt titled this series Prayers for Real Life, so I think we're going to have to deal with the middle 13 verses, which have a very different tone. So commentators actually refer to this psalm as a communal lament. And as, as we read it, maybe you notice, it's a lament over the sobering reality that our lives are brief, and they're often full of sorrow. Look at verse 10. The days of our life are 70 years, and though some be so strong that they come to 80 years, yet is their span but labor and sorrow. So soon it passes away, and we are gone. It's very cheery stuff. So kids in the congregation might be thinking with that verse, oh, 70 or 80 years, that feels like a really long time. Well, I think you'll slowly start to learn that over the course of your life, each passing year, feels like it went by a little faster than the one that came before it. So we're going to walk through the whole psalm, Psalm 90, and follow the path of lament. Because it's it's only by that path that we actually understand fully that this prayer for blessing, it can only be fulfilled through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to dive in. And here's a simple two-part outline for Psalm 90 for you. In the first half, verses 1 through 11, the end of the story Has already been written. And then in the second half, verses 12 to 17, therefore, live with that ending in mind. The end of the story has already been written, so therefore, live with that ending in mind. So if you were reading this out of a Bible, you'd see that there's a header at the top of Psalm 90, and it says, A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Now, some scholars would argue that simply means that it was written in the style of Moses. But there's really no conclusive evidence for us not to just take the plain reading that is actually there, that this was the prayer of Moses himself. And I think Psalm 90 fits perfectly within the point in Israel's history when a whole generation would die in the wilderness and then the next generation would sense the need to seek god's favor as they approach the promised land and what's cool is if this is the prayer of moses that makes this the oldest of all the psalms so in the first two verses moses begins by acknowledging the lord's character and his nature which he's then going to use to contrast to our character and our nature lord you have been our refuge from one generation to another That word refuge could also be translated as dwelling place. At this point in Israel's history, they have never had a home. They have never had a physical place of their own. But Moses acknowledges that it is the Lord himself, he who can never be taken away from them. He has been their refuge, their dwelling place, amidst their years of wandering. And then then the phrase in verse 2, you are God from everlasting and world without end. This speaks of the Lord's eternal nature. He has no beginning. He has no end. We pray a very similar prayer that's based on this verse in every service of morning prayer and evening prayer. And then comes the shift, right, in verse 3. You turn man back to the dust. You say, return, O children of men. So the Lord has no ending. we do. We are going to die. We're going to return to the dust. That phrase probably reminds you of that moment, right, in the Ash Wednesday service when the minister takes the ashes, makes the sign of the cross on your forehead, and says, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Repent and believe the gospel. And Moses is actually borrowing that image, which originally comes from Genesis chapter 3, and the story of the fall in the garden. Adam and Eve have eaten from the one tree the Lord told them not to eat of, and the consequence for their sin is death, as he had warned them. And so as part of the curse that comes afterwards, the Lord says to them, Remember, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So right away, Moses, by this image, links the fact that we are going to die to the curse of sin. Yes, the curse that Adam and Eve received, but it's actually the curse that we all have received, right? Because we all have sinned and we are all under that same sentence. And Moses makes it clear that there is no way of hiding the reality of our sin, any of it, from the Lord. Look down at verse 8. You have set our misdeeds before you and our secret sins in the light of your countenance. So when I was a kid, me and my friends were having a sleepover, and we decided that we wanted to sneak out of the house. Please do not tell my mom this story. (laughs) So we snuck out, and we thought we were so crafty and sneaky, we were going to run down the street to our friend's house. We were going to sneak around the back of his house, kind of tap gently on his window, and say, come on out with us. And while we were being so sneaky, we went around by the garage and the sensor went off for the automatic light and bing, it was bright as day outside and we woke up everyone in the house. So, I just lost my place. (laughs) Bing, yeah, thank you. We're not sneaky. (laughs) The Lord sees every one of our sins. And each of us are under the curse of sin. Each of us is going to die. There's an old headline from the satirical news source, The Onion. And it reads, world death rate holding steady at 100%. (laughs) And the, the journalist notes, death, a metabolic affliction causing total shutdown of all life functions has long been considered humanity's number one health concern. (laughs) Responsible for 100% of all recorded fatalities worldwide, the condition has no cure. So the end of your story is written. Someday, don't know what day, you will die. And this is what leads to the heart of Moses' lament. He laments the brevity of life, how quickly It's passing away. And he gives several images for this, uh, especially verses 4 through verse 10. And he bookends these verses with two specific amounts of time that he notes. In verse 4, he starts with talking about a thousand years, which could, in fact, be a reference to Methuselah, if you remember that guy who had the longest recorded life in the Bible of 969 years, almost a thousand years. And then Moses finishes in verse 10 with talking about the average human lifespan, 70 to 80 years. So, a thousand years or 70 years? Moses laments that either way, how short life really is. It's like a day that is past, verse 4. It's like a night watch or a dream that fades away, verse 5. Like grass that is green in the morning and then dried up and withered in the evening. Verse 6. In the end, our years fade away like a tale that is told. Verse 9. So verse 10 says that the span of the years of our life is but labor and sorrow. That could also be translated as the pride of the years of our lives. What we take pride in during our short lives is nothing more than labor and sorrow. So here's a definition for pride. Personal satisfaction in one's own achievements, qualities, and possessions. Or as one Christian author refers to it, the seven P's. Possessions, pleasure, prestige, popularity, promotion, power, and performance. Because the world encourages us to accumulate these things. And we look to them. We look to them to provide security, a sense of identity, a sense of happiness. But these things are also passing away along with us. And seeking after them is nothing more but a source of labor and of sorrow. Okay, so we've hit the low point of Moses' lament. So, where can he go? here. Where else can he turn but to the Lord? So part two of the lament, verses 12 to 17, they're a series of intercessions to the Lord. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Right? The end of our story is written. So help us to live with that end in mind. Help us to live wisely, not squandering the few days that we have. Moses quickly acknowledges that this puts us in a place of utter dependence on the Lord. Verse 13, Turn again, O Lord, and tarry not. Be gracious to your servants. Any blessing, Lord, he says, of this life comes only by the grace of God. And so Moses continues, verses 14 and 15, to cry out to the Lord to take action. And I think it's here that we can see a gospel light start to shine in and through these prayers. Because it's really only the death and the resurrection of Jesus that are the full and the final answers to these intercessions. Oh, satisfy us with your mercy in the morning. So, right, that's a play on the images of the night watch and the morning that we're back in verses 5 and 6. But, of course, there's a very particular morning that comes to mind for followers of Jesus, right? The resurrection morning of Jesus which was the ultimate sign of God's mercy and his love. It's the ultimate reason, as Moses prays, to rejoice and to be glad all the days of our lives. And then comfort us again, according to the measure of the days that you have afflicted us. So in an earthly sense, this prayer, it wasn't going to be answered for Moses and his generation. Because of their disobedience, his generation would not enter the promised land. They were going to die in the wilderness. But this prayer is answered in Jesus. Right? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Jesus, death is no longer the end of the story. Our stories have been transformed as we are right now a glorious and eternal ending. The resurrection of Jesus has flipped the script. Okay, so most people in this room, I'm guessing, have read the Chronicles of Narnia, read the first book in the series by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read it, you can do earmuffs for the next few sentences. You remember Edmund, one of the four children, He'd betrayed his siblings. And the witch declares that because of the rules of the deep magic, as Lewis refers to it, Edmund deserves the punishment of death. But Aslan, the lion, chooses to offer his life in the place of Edmund's. And then there's this moment, the crack of dawn, and the literal cracking of the stone table, where, boom, there he is. Aslan has returned, alive. And the two girls see him and they're bewildered and they say aslan what does this mean and he responds it means that though the witch knew the deep magic there is a magic deeper still which she did not know if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the dark darkness before time dawned she would have seen a deeper magic she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. So through the willing sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, the table has been broken, death, has started working backward. It is no longer the end of the story. The end of the story is now eternal life, eternal days in the presence of Jesus that will, verse 15, far surpass the adversity of this life. Did you hear it in our reading from 1 Corinthians this morning? For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And Paul finishes with these words, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, Your labor is not in vain. So the end of the story is written, and we can live with that ending in mind, live with the knowledge that this life truly is passing away, but that in Jesus, your life has an eternal ending, an eternal purpose, and an eternal significance. And therefore, your labor, here and now, is not in vain. So I want to finish just by offering three thoughts on how we can live lives with that ending, that eternal ending, in mind. So here we go, thought number one. Live knowing that everything in your life comes from the Lord. It's all His. Before the mountains were brought forth by His word, He was God, and the days of your life, your family, your friends, your work, your ministry, and your possessions, they're all gifts from the Lord, and ultimately, they belong to Him. And He's given them to you to provide for your needs and to bless you in this life. But we have a tendency to lose sight of the eternal giver and to spend our lives full of anxiety as we try to preserve the gifts that we've been given for this season. But we have the opportunity to live with the freedom that the Lord holds back no good gifts from us. He's given us his own son. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote, The heart is as insatiable as the grave, till Jesus enters it. And then it is a cup full to overflowing. We can loosen our grip on the gifts the Lord gives us, knowing that the Father has an infinite storehouse, knowing that he will give us our daily bread. And we can live generously, we can live thankfully with what he chooses to give us. Okay, thought number two. Invest the earthly gifts God gives you towards eternal purposes. Pastor Randy Alcorn has this analogy he uses. Imagine you lived in the Confederate states and you knew that the Civil War was about to end. You would do whatever you could to take your Confederate money, maybe put a little aside for the next few days or weeks, And you take the rest and you would try to exchange that for US currency, right? Because you would know in just a little bit of time that currency would be completely useless. So even though this world is passing away, our time, our energy, our resources, the things we've been given in this life, they can be leveraged for eternal investment. You could even say that that's actually the work of the church here on earth, investing the perishable resources of this life towards eternal purposes. The work of prayer and discipleship and mission and generosity, these things can reap eternal rewards in the kingdom of God. All right, third and final thought. Invest the earthly gifts God gives you towards the next generation. I love picturing moses praying psalm 90 at the end of his life he knows he's not going to enter the promised land and he starts his prayer by proclaiming that the lord has been the refuge of generation after generation and he finishes his prayer by praying a blessing over the generations to come the esv translation actually the esv translation of verse 16 reads Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. So every generation in the church has the same opportunity to choose to give their lives in service to the ones that will come after them, investing in those who will carry on the gospel work long after we are gone. That's actually what you're doing every time you serve our res kids, our res youth, every time you send out and support a new generation of global missionaries, every time you help send out a new church plant, and yes, every time you invest your resources in our church property for the sake of this generation and for the sake of the generations that will be coming after us. And that's what previous generations did for us, right? That's, that's why, we're, why we're here today, That's why we're followers of Jesus. That's why we're here physically in this space. And we can dedicate the labor of our lives to the eternal and glorious promise that the Lord has, even though this world is passing away. In Jesus, there is a glorious ending to the story. So may The Lord and the grace of the Lord be upon us. May he prosper the work of our hands. O Lord, we pray that you would prosper our handiwork. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.